So we pick up today once again in this fourth chapter, and as we mentioned, the first 16 verses of chapter four, the, um, the, the primary point or emphasis the apostle is making has to do with Christian unity, but Christian unity is connected to Christian maturity, and we see that in the verses that we read together today. And so we're going to focus on uh, this idea of building up the body of Christ in verses 13 through 16. Those will be the passages that we look at um, primarily today. But there the apostle elaborates on what it means or what he means by building up the body of Christ. Because remember, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers uh, are, are there to equip the saints for works of service so the body of Christ can be built up. So what does that entail, the building up of the body of Christ? Well, as we look at the whole statement here, the first thing we see is that it will be a lengthy process. So this is something that's happening uh, throughout the duration of the life of the church on earth is something that's happening uh, by a process throughout our lives as well, uh, individually. And the process is leading us to unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect or a mature man. And then he said, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So this is the goal to which the church will one day attain the goal of total maturity. That's where the Lord is taking us. He's taking us to that place of total maturity. No church has arrived there yet. There's, there's no perfect church. Uh, sometimes people say, well, you know, I don't want to go to that church. It's got problems. Or, you know, people are, are sort of on a quest to find the perfect church. You will never find the perfect church. There's no such thing. It doesn't exist. The church will not be perfected and brought to total maturity until we are there in the presence of the Lord. There's no perfect church. No church has arrived. Uh, there's no movement or denomination that has arrived there yet. No movement or denomination. Now, there's some movements, some denominations. They think they've arrived. They feel like they're better than everybody else. They've got it more right than everybody else. But that just isn't the case. We're all in a process and Finally, there's no individual Christian uh, that has yet arrived at that point of total maturity. But the big question is, are we moving in that direction? Are we moving in the direction of maturity? Are we making progress? And that should be our desire, that we would be progressing toward. The important thing is that we're moving in the right direction that our trajectory is set toward maturity. And that's what we want to look at today. We want to look at the marks of Christian maturity. And here in the, the verses that we're looking at, there are four things that Paul highlights. One is unity. The second is truth. The third is love. And the fourth is fellowship. And so we'll look at each one of those today. Now, we've talked in the past about unity, and we've talked about it in quite a bit of detail, so I'm not going to go into that 
in any uh, in-depth fashion today. But let me remind you, previously we talked about the need to strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And we looked at the importance of being careful not to divide with other believers over non-essential matters. And we, as I said, we talked quite a bit about that. I, I've put a, an emphasis on that over the past few weeks. And it's an important thing. And um, so we want, to, we want to be mindful of that. We want to keep that in mind. But at the same time, we also have got to beware of the deceitful plotting of evil men that Paul warns us about here in the passage. So look at um, verse 13 with me, where he says, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. So even though we want to do our best, we um, endeavor, put forth a strong effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, we cannot fail to also realize that there is deception out there. We've got to be aware of that. There are people that are, are bent on leading others astray and regard to the faith. So we, we've got to be aware of that. We've got to be conscious of it. We've got to be on our guard against it. The, the problem when you, when you talk about unity, and we, we discussed this previously, is that some people are willing to... Uh, to uh, go for unity at the, the expense of truth. And that's something that we can't do. We have to hold on to essential truth. We can't give away essential truth in order to uh, obtain unity. And as I pointed out, un it's the unity of the spirit. So there's already a unity that's there. As I said previously, the apostle is not calling us to create a unity, which would be a false sort of a thing. He's calling us to maintain the unity that exists, and it's the unity of the Spirit. So Paul here warns us that there are those uh, deceitful persons who are, are going to attempt at times to lead us astray. And here he paints a picture that is the antithesis of maturity. It's a vivid picture of spiritual instability. So the immature Christian is a person who's vulnerable to being tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. The, the stronger we become, the more mature we are, the more we advance and develop in our faith, the more stable we will become. So those who are always running after some new doctrine or some new spiritual experience, although they sometimes appear to be more spiritual than other people, the fact of the matter is they're, they're spiritually immature. You see, a mark of spiritual maturity is stability. You're, you're grounded, you're established, or you're, or you're becoming grounded and established in the truth. So you're not running here, there, and everywhere uh, looking for some new thing, tossed to and fro, 
as Paul puts it here. And then he speaks of every wind of doctrine. That's such a perfect description of false teaching. It seems to blow in the wind from place to place around the world. I can think of different false teachings that have come through the church over the past few decades. And what would happen is you would, you would hear about something. You just hear little bits about something going on in some far corner of the world. And yet, you know, given enough time, that would inevitably show up in your own community and it would make its way into certain churches in the community. And, and so the way Paul describes it here, it is that sort of a thing. Every wind of doctrine, it just seems there are these things that, that sort of blow in the wind and they land in churches and they oftentimes create a tremendous amount of instability. So we have to be aware of that. But the antidote of, to false teaching is being rooted in the truth of Scripture. You know, I've seen this over and over again. For uh, Christians and churches who have a, a good, strong foundation in the Scriptures, this kind of stuff really, it, it really never affects them. It, it's almost like the Scriptures give you, uh, an, you're, you're immunized to that. You, you get, you know, it's like getting a, a shot, um, and you, you're, you're no longer vulnerable to it. And I remember times over the years where I would be teaching the church and instructing them about some of the false teaching and things like that. And you know, people would come up and they're like, wow, I never heard of anything like that. I never heard of it until you told us about it. And that was a good thing in a sense. It showed that there was like a, a protective hedge around the church that just really prevented that stuff from coming in. So the, the scriptures themselves are the antidote to that. Now, that brings us to the, the point here, the, the first main point, and that is the truth. So Christians are going to be living in unity with their brothers, brothers and sisters as they mature in the faith. They're also, at the same time, going to be getting more and more established in the truth. The truth, of course, here is a reference to biblical truth, the truth of God's word. When it comes to the truth about God, the truth about us as, as people, the truth about where we came from, why we're here, where we're headed, the answers to that are all found in the scripture. That, that's where we go to find answers to these questions. You know, it's interesting in our uh, world today, in our culture today, uh, people hardly think to go to the Bible when they're asking those questions. They usually go to uh, the sociologist or the psychologist or whatever, uh, thinking that that's where the answers lie. But the answers are really given to us in the pages of Scripture. So the truth, and here Paul speaks of the truth, and he says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and so forth. He said, but speaking the truth in love. Now, speaking the truth, the word here, there's just one Greek word here. And speaking is, is a bit of an interpretation by the translators, but it's a good one. Uh, but the word is actually truthing. So, it's, so what Paul is literally saying, if you translated it literally, truthing in love. 
Oh, we don't use that kind of a term, truthing. What is that? But here's the thing. Since that's the word, it probably includes more than speaking. So you could say living the truth in love. You could say doing the truth in love. And of course, you can as well say speaking the truth in love. So a maturing Christian is a person who is getting more and more established in the truth so that we're speaking it, so that we're living it, so that we're doing it. But of course, that all really would start with believing it, right? Believing the truth. Now, there are some today in evangelicalism who are suggesting that the Bible is not necessarily telling us the truth when it tells us certain things. Uh, There are those today that are suggesting that there are um, certain aspects of Scripture that uh, are incorrect in the information that is being given to us. For example, there are those today who say uh, that when the Bible speaks of uh, the original two human beings, the original couple, Adam and Eve, that's, that's mythology. That's not really actual history. There were no such people as Adam and Eve, some would say. Uh, others would point to somebody like Noah. There, there was no historical person, Noah. There was no uh, ark that he built. There was no flood that took place back in those days. They would say that this is, this is mythological. This is something that was just you know, added into the scriptures to sort of enhance the biblical record. And then when you question them on, well, you know, if, that, if, if what you're saying is true, then why did Jesus seem to think that Adam and Eve were, were real historical people? Why did Jesus seem to think there was actually a flood and so forth? They, they would say, they would go so far as to say, well, Jesus was mistaken. Uh, people today, you know, would say uh, Jesus was mistaken. And in some cases, people would not just accuse Jesus of being mistaken, of not knowing that. Some would say that he was actually a bit deceptive because he did know that those people weren't actually historical figures. But because everybody in his generation thought they were, he just went along with it. He just kind of accommodated the culture. They call it the accommodation theory. Now, these ideas have been around for a long time, but they are, are becoming popularized again these days. And there, there are people that are espousing these things, people within the evangelical community. But you see, this would be an example of not believing the truth. You see, if we're gonna live the truth, do the truth, speak the truth, we've gotta first of all believe the truth. And that's the point that I want to make here. What we're really dealing with here is is the issue of biblical authority, biblical inspiration, biblical inerrancy. And and this idea that the Bible contains these, these errors is a denial of biblical inerrancy and an open door to rejecting anything in Scripture that we don't agree with. Belief in the inspiration and the authority of Scripture is an all-or-nothing proposition. 
What I mean by that is this. You either believe that the Bible is, that the whole Bible is the word of God and you have, then that's the authority. If you disbelieve that in any way, if there's any part of the scripture that you say, well, that's not the word of God there, then you just open the door for any other part of scripture to be questioned as well. So it's an all or nothing proposition. Either what Paul said is true or it's not true. Paul said all scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Either that's true, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, or we have no basis to conclude that any scripture is given by inspiration of God. So we believe, I believe in the inspiration, the authority of scripture. I believe in the inerrancy of scripture. And when it, at the end of the day, what this really comes down to is simply it's a matter of belief. The person who denies the existence of Adam and Eve does so on the basis that they simply don't believe that that's how things would have started. The person who denies that there was a worldwide flood and an ark and a man named Noah, they, they deny that based on the, the belief that it just couldn't have happened. So it's really a matter of belief versus unbelief. And a, a person who's maturing in the faith or, or moving toward maturity is a person who's going to have more and more confidence in the truth and the authority of scripture as they go along that path. You know, sometimes those who bring these questions or, or cast these doubts, they they present themselves as, well, you know, we're just more mature than other people. That's why we know that this stuff really didn't happen. Well, actually, it's just the reverse. It, it's an immaturity in the faith that would question or challenge more uh, properly the authority of Scripture. So there is the believing of the truth. There is the knowing of the truth. One of the marks of the Christian life is that we are in the pursuit of the knowledge of God's truth. A person who's maturing is a person who's uh, committing themselves more and more to the understanding of the scripture, the study and the understanding of the scripture, and then the speaking of the truth. So the mature believer lives the truth, does the truth, speaks the truth. It's not easy sometimes to speak the truth in our culture, is it? Sometimes it's not easy to speak the truth in certain environments. Sometimes uh, we're intimidated and out of fear we draw back. And occasionally that can happen to anybody. It can even happen to a mature believer occasionally. But if that's a consistent thing where there's uh, a timidity to the point that I'm just not, I, I can't engage with anybody conversationally um, with a presentation of the scriptures, that, that's a mark of immaturity. It's, it shows that I need to grow in this area. So the mature believer lives and speaks the truth. But then Paul says here that it's not just speaking the truth, but it's speaking the truth in love. And this is sometimes where uh, we see a real breakdown. There are people that appear to be mature because they know the scriptures. They have an intellectual understanding. They, they know lots of verses. They can quote them verbatim. And maybe they know uh, certain aspects of theology. 
Maybe they are uh, acquainted with certain false teachings and so forth, and they're able to give a good argument against that, but they cannot do it in love. So on the one hand, it seems like, wow, they are so mature. Look at the Bible knowledge they have. But because they're unable to communicate that knowledge in love, it really shows that they're not quite as mature as they might have thought they were or as others might have uh, thought them to be. Because speaking the truth has to be coupled with love. We have to speak the truth in love. One commentator said this, and I thought it was worth quoting. He said, thank God there are those in the contemporary church who are determined at all costs to defend and uphold God's revealed truth, but sometimes they are conspicuously lacking in love. When they think they smell heresy, their nose begins to twitch, their muscles ripple, and the light of battle enters their eye. They seem to enjoy nothing more than a fight. Others make the opposite mistake. They are determined at all costs to maintain and exhibit brotherly love, but in order to do so are prepared even to sacrifice the central truths of revelation. Both of these tendencies are unbalanced and unbiblical. Truth becomes hard. I like this. Truth becomes hard if it is not softened by love. Love becomes soft if it is not strengthened by truth. The apostle calls us to hold the two together, which should not be difficult for the spirit-filled believers since the Holy Spirit is himself the spirit of truth and his first fruit is love. There is no other root than this to a fully mature Christian unity and experience. So I think he put that quite well. Speaking the truth in love. Now, some of you are familiar with the term apologetics. Apologetics doesn't mean to say you're sorry for being a Christian. (laughs) Some people say, well, what do you mean? Why do I have to apologize for my faith? No, the word uh, means to defend the faith, to put forth a, an argument uh, in favor of the faith in this case. Now, in, in the realm of apologetics, oftentimes you see this very thing that we're talking about here. You see people who are, who are very brilliant and they're quite capable at defending the faith, but so often they do it without any sensitivity, without any respect toward the, the people that they're contending with. Uh, they, they honestly just do it without any love. Years ago, there was a very well-known apologist, probably one of the great apologists of his generation, and that was Dr. Walter Martin. And Walter Martin was unparalleled in his knowledge of the cults and false religions and things like that. And the guy was amazing. He was absolutely brilliant. But he was also mean. <laughs> he was very mean. And I used to listen to him on the radio. I was a fairly young Christian back in those days, and I would feel sorry for the people that called him. You know, they were in error, sure, but the way he treated them was so poorly and so disrespectful, and he was just many times downright mean-spirited. He would leave the caller on the other end of the phone in tears. And, And I remember back in those days thinking, you know, if I ever had the opportunity to do a program like that, I would be nice. That would be one of my goals, would be to be nice. Because we need to speak the truth, but we don't need to do it angrily. We shouldn't do it angrily. 
Because we don't want to win the argument and lose the person, do we? No, we want to win the person. And so we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful about how we approach people with the truth. And sometimes, you know, we can be so zealous for the truth. It's just, I'm just telling the truth. That's, a, that's all I'm doing. I'm standing for the truth. I'm defending the truth. Yeah, you are, but you're doing it really rudely and really arrogantly and really obnoxiously. And you're, you're just turning people off. The classic New Testament passage on defending the truth is found in 1 Peter 3.15. Let me read it to you. It says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense. There's the word, the, an, an apologia. To give an apologetic, a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. So sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense for the faith, he says. But then he adds this at the end, in meekness and respect. With meekness and respect. I wonder how many times we left off that last part of the verse. Because so often it has to do with the way we say things, not just what we say. We have to be careful. You know, honestly, sometimes I, I will listen to myself from a, a recorded message, maybe from 10 years ago or something like that. And I think, oh gosh, I can't believe I said it like that. That was so, um, you know, I, I said it so harshly. I might have said it, you know, just seemingly so arrogantly. I, I, I want to grow in being able to say the truth, speak those hard truths, but to say them in such a way that, look, at the end of the day, if somebody's offended, let them be offended by the truth, not the, by the way I delivered it. That's, that's the point that Paul is making. Now, remember, when we are speaking the truth to people, they're going to be a lot more likely to receive the truth if it's coming to them in a respectful manner. That's why I think it's unwise in our dealings, say, with people of other religions to just come right out and attack their religion. That immediately puts a person on the defensive. And it, it's not to say that at certain points we, we don't challenge them in regard to their religion. We, we obviously are going to need to do that at certain points. But we just need to, to really be wise in how we, we do that. We also have to realize that many of the people that we will be contending with at times and having disagreements with are Christians, true Christians, our brothers and sisters who have been led astray with some wind of doctrine. They're being tossed to and fro. They're being tripped up by something that's not going to endanger their soul eternally. It's just going to keep them from maturing in the faith. So we want to challenge them on it. We want to see them grow out of it. But we have to be careful to remember that while I'm doing that, I have to respect this person as a brother or sister in Christ. Sometimes we hear people speaking to other believers in such harsh tones, and we don't want to do that. You know, there are many people who are believers who are just as saved as we are, but who are caught up in, in certain areas of false teaching, not in regard to the essentials of the faith, but in in regard to some non-essential things. Uh, there, it, within the charismatic movement, there, there are a lot of 
aberrant ideas in floating around in the charismatic movement. You have the, the prosperity doctrine, the prosperity doctrine, the overemphasis of that prosperity thing. If, you know, if you're truly uh, right with God, you're gonna be healthy, wealthy, and wise kind of a thing. You're gonna be rich, you're gonna be famous. You're, you know, and if you're ever sick or anything like that, then that's an indicator of some sort of failure or some sort of sin in your life. That's, that's incorrect teaching. That's aberrant teaching. That's, that's false doctrine. But quite often, those who are embracing that are true believers. So we have to be careful in dealing with them. We have to remember as we're talking to them, because they are our brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to speak the truth to them, yes, but we need to speak the truth in love. There are many other facets of the charismatic thing where you find um, teaching that just isn't spot on when you, when you look at scripture, some of the th- uh, ideas of signs and wonders and prophecy and those kinds of things, they're just, they don't line up with, with a close examination of scripture. But Christians buy into those things. They believe those things. So we have to be loving toward them. We have to be patient toward them. We have to keep in mind that they are also God's children. They might just be led astray in a, in a certain area. So having that uh, desire to grow in the truth, that's a mark of maturity. Coming along in our understanding of God's word, uh, love, speaking, living, doing life in love. And of course, all of this unity is, is part of the bigger picture of what Paul's saying here. But the fourth and final thing that I want to throw in here, and that's found really in the 16th verse, is fellowship. So we're looking at the marks of Christian maturity. Unity, truth, love, and now fourthly, fellowship. Fellowship is so important. And I've been emphasizing this over the past several weeks as well. Listen, you cannot grow and become mature as God desires you to be if you are disengaged from the body of Christ, you have to be connected. God has made it that way. You see, there, there are these different components that bring about a, a healthy spiritual life. And if you take any one of them out, there's going to be a deficiency. So let's say that you, you're big on the truth. Man, I'm, I'm in the word. I study the word. I know the word better than anybody else. Great. Be in the word. Study the word. Know the word. And let's just say that you love too. But, you know, it's kind of hard to love if you're not around people, right? So you might love theoretically. You know, it's like the person who says, I love the whole world. I just don't really like people. <laughs> you know? It's easy to sort of love like that, isn't it? But then you meet the individuals in the world and you're like, well, wait a second. This is a different than I thought. So this component of fellowship, it's got to be there. You have to engage. God has set it up this way. So again, looking back at verse 16, and I'm back using the New King James Version here. Uh, he says, from whom the whole body, and notice the term that he uses, terms, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, 
causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So look at those words, joined and knit together. You see, there, there's, there's no such thing as uh, a mature Christian who isolates him or herself from the rest of the body. You, you can't do that and possibly become mature. Maturity takes place in this context of being joined and knit together with other people. That's how it happens. And then as he says, every part does it share. Every part does it share. You are one part of the body, but you're linked to these other parts. And the body functions properly because all of these parts are connected together. If you disconnect them, the body will malfunction. So in order for a, a, a properly functioning physical body, all of your parts have to be working harmoniously together. And so it is true of the body of Christ as well. And as we do this, as we engage, as we plug in, as we get involved, this is where then growth takes place. The body is strengthened. It edifies itself in love. Now this is, you know, we, we've inherited something from generation after generation after generation uh, that is a bit challenging to this whole thing that we're talking about here of fellowship and engagement. We've inherited a tradition where we gather together on Sundays like we're doing today, and it's a good thing, but sometimes this is what we limit church to. We think that this is it. As long as I came to church, as long as I sat and listened to a sermon, as long as I smiled at a few people and said hello, I, I did my church thing. I'm a Christian, and that's what Christians do. We go to church on Sunday. But you see, the biblical picture is much different the biblical picture is an ongoing engagement with God's people. It's 24-7. It happens all the time. It's not just one day a week. But since this is what we have, we have to, we have to do our best to not fall into the trap of thinking that this is all that it is. So when we come, we need to come ready to engage with other people. You know, I'll give you a good way to approach coming on Sundays. On your way here to church, say, Lord, I'm coming today. I want to be ministered to by you. And I pray that you would show me how I can be a blessing to somebody else. And I pray, Lord, that you would allow somebody else to be a blessing to me. You'd be amazed what will happen if you pray that prayer sincerely. God will start bringing you into contact with those other parts of the body that are necessary for you at this time to build you up and to strengthen you. And you will be doing that for others as well. Because of the largeness of our congregation and all of that, I have a, a desire to see that one day in the future that we would be able to have a um, hundred, at least, uh, small groups connected to the church where we can get together. Some people today call them community groups. They've been called home fellowships. They've been called cell groups, all different kinds of titles for these groups. But you see, this is where the body life takes place. 
Now, we do have some of that. We're trying to accommodate that. The women's ministry has these great groups, and that's a fantastic thing. The men's ministry does that somewhat as well. Uh, Here on Sunday nights with Acts 2.42, we're trying to combine those components of uh, the word and fellowship and worship and prayer together. But at the end of the day, I've got to engage. You've got to engage. Nobody else can do that for you. You've got to take that step to do it. And understand that this is part of maturing. If you're going to mature, if you're going to become the person that God intends you to be, this is something that you must do. You must engage. So these are the things. These are the marks. Fellowship. Love. Emphasis on the truth, the foundation of the truth. And, and as we're, uh, you know, as we're doing these things, as we're focusing on these things, as we're growing in these things, then there will come as a result of that, uh, unity will be the natural thing. Because as Paul here is talking, his primary topic is unity, but then remember he connects it to becoming a mature man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the more we mature in the faith, the more we will grow in unity together. And you know, the more we're, we're living in unity together as God's people, the stronger we're going to be and the more effective we're going to be and the more able we are going to be to make the impact in the world that God desires us to make at this time. So God help us to pursue these things to seek to grow and become mature. And if there's any one of these areas today, any one of these four areas that you look at and say, you know, uh, you know, I, I'm, I, okay, I'm doing good here. You know, I'm, I'm studying, I'm, I'm in the word, I'm learning the scriptures. Great. I'm, I'm seeking to, uh, you know, reach out to people in love and so forth. But, uh, you know, maybe this area of engagement, I need to be more engaged. What, whatever fits with where you're at. Let the Spirit of God today show you that and, and let him then lead you into that place that will lend itself to greater spiritual maturity in your life because that's the goal. That's where Christ is ultimately taking all of us. So Lord, we pray that you would grow us up more and more in our faith, that we would become more mature as the days pass, Lord, that we would truly be on that trajectory. Lord, we know that this is where we're headed. The church collectively is headed here and, and we're individually moving in that direction as members of your body. But Lord, if there are places right now where we personally need to grow, these areas specifically that we need uh, to have you do a fresh work on us in regard to these places. Lord, we're asking you to do that today. So here we are. We thank you that you're faithful. We thank you that you're at work among us. And Lord, we're just desiring for you to do all you want to do right here in our midst and in our hearts today. 
we thank you that you are able, that you are able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. In Jesus' name, amen.